Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm Frances Lannan, principal of the college, and it's an enormous pleasure to welcome all of you here this evening uh, on behalf of the governing body of LMH and the trustees of the Oxford International Biomedical Center. Uh, we gather to honor the memory and celebrate the extraordinary scientific achievements of Anne McLaren. I'm very pleased that so many family members and friends and scientific colleagues are here with us tonight. Anne came up to LMH in 1945 to read zoology and then stayed and completed her doctorate. Her research career developed at UCL and Edinburgh before, in 1974, she became director of the MRC Mammalian Development Unit in London. In 1992, she retired from that post and moved to Cambridge to the Wellcome CRC Institute, later renamed the Gurdon Institute, after our speaker this evening. Anne's international distinction as an experimental scientist in the field of mammalian embryology was matched by her careful concern for the ethical and legal consequences of in vivo fertilization and other clinical advances in human embryology. Among many honors and awards that Dr. McLaren received, she was elected Fellow of the Royal Society in 1975, Honorary Fellow of this college in 1984, and appointed DBE in 1993. For all her eminence and distinction and the list of honorary degrees and other uh, awards is a very long one, for all that eminence and distinction, Anne did not like fuss or formality. And she remained always enormously supportive of her younger scientific colleagues. We are most fortunate that our speaker this evening is Professor Sir John Gurdon, and I'm now going to invite Professor Charles Pasternak, the director of the Oxford International Biomedical Centre, to introduce Sir John. Well, thank you very much, Principal, uh, and we're very grateful to you as are the family of Anne McLaren and the audience for organizing this event. Thank you. In its obituary of Anne McLaren, it stated that the day before her tragic death, she spent the day quietly working at her institute in Cambridge. In fact, she didn't. <laughs> she was at a meeting at the trustees meeting, the annual general meeting of the Oxford International Biomedical Centre in London. It's true to say she left at one o'clock and I think she probably packed in an afternoon <laughs> of work in Cambridge. But the reason I'm showing you this and mentioning it is to reinforce what the principal has said, that Anne had plenty of time 
for the very sm a small niche charity like ours, quite apart from the big events like MRC, Royal Society, which she was a, an eminent foreign secretary for many years, Wellcome Trust and so forth. Uh, she participated in a debate with us, with um, Bishop Richard Harris some years ago. On a personal level, she had time to read through a chapter I was writing and gave me the benefit of all her comments. So she was immensely supportive of quite small people and organizations. And so it was great pleasure for me to be able to nominate her for one of the things you hadn't mentioned, which is the L'Oreal UNESCO, or maybe it's UNESCO L'Oreal um, Women of the Year, Woman Scientist of the Year Award, uh, which she duly won in 2001. And I suspect she actually quite enjoyed the junket uh, in Paris, which <laughs> was done over three days. Of course, Sir John has just as many distinctions as Anne, and were I to list them, to go through them, I'm afraid I'd eat into the, uh, his entire lecture. So I, I won't go into that. I just want to say that Sir John started off in Oxford actually as a classicist, and within a very short time turned to zoology, and within an equally short time conducted a groundbreaking experiment, which he's going to talk about, so I won't tell you about it, except to say that it, had, it showed that the differentiated cells of our body, our fingertips and our intestines and so on, actually contain the whole of the information for making a new person, uh, which was subsequently played on, uh, utilized by the makers of Dolly and so on. But the groundwork was all done by Sir John. Um, when he moved to Oxford, uh, moved to Cambridge uh, in 1971, Francis Crick said, oh, I see that Oxford has lost its intellectual stimulus for John. <laughs> and I think um, intellectual stimulus is what he has given us because, like Beethoven, he changed his subject. Beethoven moved musicology from the classical to the romantic. John moved developmental biology from the purely descriptive to the molecular. And that's an achievement as great as any other. And with that, I will ask Sir John to come and deliver this talk. Um, thank you, Principal, and thank you, Charles, for your very generous introduction. It's always, um, uh, one feels a bit apprehensive coming back to a place where, after all, I was educated for a number of years in Oxford, um, all these clever people thinking, has he ever done anything worthwhile since? So, as someone said the other day, you're much more comfortable if you're lecturing in Ulaanbaatar on the grounds that you'll never be seen by any of those people again. I, I can't shelter under that particular safety. <laughs> so, it is indeed a pleasure to be invited to give this talk in recognition of Anne McCarran, who actually was, we worked in the same building for, I think, no less than uh, 20 years or, or, or close to that. Uh, she has, as has been said, an enormous number of uh, recognitions, Royal Medal of the Royal Society, March of Dimes Award, DBE, Honorary Fellow of this college and indeed of UCL and King's Cambridge, and uh, a basket full of honorary degrees to the extent that one might say that any university that failed to give her an honorary degree 
is probably not a serious university. <laughs> so she was certainly one of the most recognized leaders in the field in, uh, in recent times. So why is she so well known? Why is she so famous? And this, these are the points that I will cover in, in this talk. Talk a little bit about her early pioneering work and then emphasizing the female germline, which, as a matter of fact, connects with nuclear reprogramming. I'll then talk a bit about that uh, very current work on nuclear reprogramming by gene overexpression, and then really back to the germline, talking about mechanisms of nuclear reprogramming, and then I'll say a bit at the end about science administration and ethics. So let's start with the early pioneering work that she did. And she did her PhD in, or DPhil, in Oxford. And I give you here the title of her PhD, Factors Affecting Susceptibility to Neurotropic Viruses. Now, interestingly, she never again worked with viruses and didn't work with neurotropic agents. And as a matter of fact, this curious coincidence is paralleled by that of Francis Crick, whose um, DPhil PhD thesis was called Polypeptides and Proteins X-ray Studies. In fact, he never took any great interest in polypeptides, didn't study proteins, and did almost nothing with X-rays. So the conclusion I draw uh, for those starting out on life, it's much the best thing is to do a PhD or DPhil in something you have no intention of studying any further. So PhD supervisors may find that a helpful point. <clears throat> so this is um, her at an early stage, and uh, I've put up at the top Anne McCarron with mouse. I could have put up Anne McCarron with test tubes, but the fact is she didn't like test tubes very much, and she really did very much like mice. So that's really been the, 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 the pattern of, of her career. <coughs> and now that's gone out of... I've been suffering the most terrible problems with this machine. It's now jumped. I have to go back. It's jumped. It's, it's cancelled one of my slides. Nevertheless, what the slide did was to uh, tell you or show you the key early paper that she wrote in Nature in uh, uh, 1958 with Biggers uh, <coughs> on the point that she found a way of culturing mouse embryos in culture, having taken them out of the mother and then <coughs> putting them back into the foster mother for further development. Now that was a, uh, nowadays you'd think that's rather trivial, but actually it was a very key event because <coughs> up till that time, no one could do any experimental work with mammal embryos. There they were hidden away in the mother and you didn't know you could take them out, but you couldn't do anything much with them. So she found a way of of getting them out, culturing them, and getting them back into the mother so that they then formed uh, normal, normal mice. <coughs> and that really opened up the whole field of mammalian embryology. It was, a, it was a really a, a key event, and the, the slide that's missing simply showed the, this uh, early paper. Now, soon after that, she <coughs> uh, went on to do other uh, very important embryological work, and she wrote a book on chimeras. Her frontispiece shows this uh, Etruscan chimera with a, 
um, a lion and a snake uh, and a goat. I'm not sure whether the snake is eating the goat or the lion's eating the goat, but whatever. So that was a bit imaginary, but the, the, the idea of, of, of complicated mixtures of animals did exist. <coughs> but what Anne found was that if you take very early uh, mouse embryos, about eight cells, and you mix two of them together, those two groups of eight cells will form an embryo and can then make an animal. And she did this <coughs> with mice, mixing uh, white mice embryos and black mice embryos. And here you see the, uh, that both kinds of cells contributed to the, to the mice, in, uh, actually in a rather interesting way, sort of patterns and uh, patches on each side. <coughs> now that um, was followed later, you may or may not know, by people finding that they can make these chimeras out of, say, sheep and goats. They're, they're near enough together to have a kind of combined uh, animal. Maybe relieved to know that it doesn't work if you mix up humans and monkeys. They didn't, that doesn't work that way. But one of the outcomes of this work was quite interesting, and that is that <coughs> of those early eight cells, only three actually give rise to the actual embryo itself. And we'll come back to this point later. It's quite, quite an important point that most of the early cells of an embryo do not contribute to the actual born individual. <coughs> now, she then devoted a large amount of her life to germ cells. Uh, these are, this, in the very early mouse embryos, a little patch there, just a rather handful of cells, maybe only a dozen or so. And those give rise to the whole of the germ line, meaning the eggs and sperm. And <coughs> her interest was very much in what tells those cells uh, whether they should be eggs or sperm. And she found, interestingly, that it isn't the sex chromosome composition of those cells, it's rather the environment around them which tells them whether they should decide to become eggs or sperm. But this was very much her continuing uh, interest in the, uh, the uh, <coughs> development and characteristics um, of the so-called germ line. <coughs> now, the germ line, which I shall be talking about fairly largely, does in fact connect, surprisingly you might say, with um, the field I've worked in myself, which is nuclear transfer and, and uh, reprogramming. But before explaining that, let me point out one of the fundamental principles of development. Um, this is just to say what I'm going to talk about. And this is this. <coughs> um, here we have egg, embryo, fetus, adult. And you notice that the egg makes a number of cells as they increase, and they follow different pathways, different lineages, so that eventually this pathway goes to the brain, that one to the intestine, and other ones to muscle and heart. And sometimes, as the lineages diverge, they amplify, the cells increase a great deal at that point, and then they go on to the next stage. <coughs> the really important point is that you cannot go backwards. So once a cell has got this far, it's, it's going to become brain or nerve, and it can't then become intestine or anything else. And likewise, the muscle-heart lineage or the blood lineage, it's essentially a one-way process of cell differentiation becoming more and more restricted. <coughs> there are, however, ways of reversing this process, and that's where 
nuclear reprogramming comes in. So it works like this. <coughs> One starts with something like skin or intestine of an adult. The thing I'll be talking about is nuclear transfer. You put a nucleus from one of those cells into the egg, and then this mysterious process called nuclear reprogramming happens by which that nucleus that was once part of, say, a skin cell is told to go backwards and forget that and start all over again. And you then get the early embryo, sometimes called a blastula or blastocyst, and these cells can then be given various factors, called signal factors, and you can direct them into muscle or nerve. In fact, these cells are really, they can do anything. And so you choose what factors to give them to send them down this route. <coughs> that means that you can derive a muscle or nerve cell from a skin cell, in principle. And this is why the nuclear reprogramming is a particularly important process, and that has a great deal to do with the female germline, which is the fundamental interest of Anne McLaren. So let me now just go through some of these experiments to give you a feeling of how they actually work. <coughs> the nuclear transfer process, as it's called, involves taking body cells, separating the cells, and putting the nucleus of one of these into an egg. It's actually a, an egg whose own genes have been taken away. And this can be done in frogs, and, and nowadays it can be done in mice, and in quite a range of different mammals. That's the fundamental process. <coughs> I'm tempted to go back to this, show this animal, which was when I was a graduate student in Oxford, and it was the first one we got that actually produced a completely normal, uh, sexually mature adult animal having started with a body cell. So that showed the method worked. And <coughs> it's a good opportunity to thank my supervisor, Michael Fishberg, who was a lecturer in zoology at the time, and he <coughs> cleverly discovered a mutation which determines the number of nucleoli. So these spots are called nucleoli, and each nucleus, that's a nucleus, and that's a spot, that is diagnostic of this mutant. The, the non-mutant ones have two of these spots in most cells, and these ones don't survive. But it was a crucial advance by which you could genetically mark the nucleus you were working with and show, without any doubt, that the animal you got at the end was in fact derived from the nucleus you transplanted rather than from the, uh, the nucleus uh, of the egg. Now one can <coughs> start this experiment off with specialized cells. So this is a, a section through uh, a larva and the bright red are the muscle cells and the blue spots are the nuclei in those, and you can separate these cells out. So this is a muscle cell, that's its nucleus, where all the genes are, and the, this striated line right through the cell is a muscle fiber. So that nucleus has carried out its specialized function in making that cell become a muscle cell. That is, a muscle cell on its uh, one-way journey to becoming a muscle cell and it wouldn't make anything else. But if you take that nucleus out <coughs> and transplant it to an egg, then you can get normal larvae like these. And if you look in detail at those, for example, the eye of one of these, that's the lens, the retina. In fact, it's a perfectly normal 
looking eye, but the point is that each of the thousands or so cells comprising this eye have in them a nucleus which is the direct descendant of the nucleus that was once part of the muscle cell. So it's, it's, uh, it illustrates the magnitude of the change. <clears throat> and this is all due to the factors in the egg which tell that nucleus that it must now go backwards in development and start, as it were, life again. Uh, here's another example where, in this case, we're using this green fluorescent marker, which, as a matter of fact, was accorded the Nobel Prize for discovering that this year. And it's a wonderful marker by which you can follow individual cells. So the green cells all came from intestine, and the black ones, which are all part of the same muscle, came from the host embryo in this graft. Again, making the point that you can switch, as it were, development backwards by this route. <coughs> now, if we summarize all these experiments, all you need to know is that a switch between unrelated cell types, for example, intestine two muscle and nerve, no, this never normally happens, this happens in a reasonably high proportion of cases, about 30%. The egg doesn't do it perfectly, but it does pretty well. So it reverses development to that efficiency, and <coughs> that's uh, a key point that I want to uh, talk more about. So just to conclude from the, <coughs> excuse me, the egg nuclear transfer experiments. There are two conclusions. One is that the nuclei of some differentiated cells are in fact totipotent, meaning you can get fertile adults from the transplanted nuclei of an intestine cell. It, it proves the point that Charles mentioned that the, all our cells actually have the same genes. And so the prospect of cell replacement therapy would not be possible without that, but given that fact, it does become a real possibility. And the other point is that the functional muscle and nerve from intestine, for example, works with about a 30% efficiency. That, that one up there does not work with that efficiency, but it does, it does work. Now, <clears throat> I'm now going to say a little bit, um, slightly technical, about epigenetic memory and the major observation is this, that when you transplant a nucleus from a specialized cell into an egg, the success rate goes down rather dramatically the more specialized the cell is. So things like muscle cells or nerve cells, the egg will reverse them but not with the same efficiency. So this shows the decreasing efficiency with which you can get mammal embryos reaching birth or frog embryos making tadpoles, if you start with an embryo, it really works pretty well, around 30%. But if you start with an adult, it really works a great deal less well, <clears throat> only about 5%. Why is that? We're, we're very interested in why that should be. And this experiment tells us that in spite of the nuclei being reversed, they nevertheless have an amazing memory of where they were before. So in this case, we've started with a a, an amphibian tadpole, taken a muscle cell, transplanted its nucleus into the egg, and grown the embryo, like I showed you. We then separate out the part of the embryo which will form the nerve, that's this top part, uh, take away the middle bit which will form muscle, and take the bottom bit which will form uh, endoderm and intestine. And the odd thing is that the, these nerve cells and the gut cells remember that they came from a muscle cell. 
because they now express muscle genes to a rather high extent, in fact, way higher than any such cells should normally do. And for the experts, this is interesting because there's no transcription at that time, so the nuclei somehow remember, in spite of not expressing their genes, where they came from. We ask why this is, and <coughs> the bottom line for quite a lot of large amount of work is that there's a particular histone, and I know Marjorie Ord is in the audience and she will know all about this, histone H3.3 actually helps to explain this memory. It's a particular molecule, and these are the evidence, correlation with this histone molecule associated with memory, overexpress the molecule, you increase memory, or you underexpress it, and you, you delete the memory. So, in a curious way, the, the nuclei go into the egg, and they're given a large <coughs> dose of this special uh, kind of histone, which confers memory on them, so they remember what they were. And that is a major reason why the nuclear reprogramming doesn't work as efficiently as you might think it would. Works, but not perfectly, and that's partly because of this surprising memory. <clears throat> and people are hard pushed to explain the basis of this, but this is one explanation. The red spots represent what are called nucleosomes uh, with active genes. When the cell divides, the DNA undergoes semi-conservative replication, the nucleosomes don't. One goes to one daughter bit of DNA, the other one the other one, and these now attract like ones to themselves, so you get back the same position again. It's not clear why that happens, but I mention it because it's a rather uh, peculiar effect of nuclear transfer, and if we could understand how to reverse epigenetic memory, we would make the whole of this process uh, ultimately leading to cell replacement a great deal more efficient. So that's a little bit about, um, about memory. Now, I'm about to switch over now to tell you about another very major advance in moderately recent time, and it's, you may have read in newspapers about embryonic stem cells. Uh, what these actually are, are cells taken from the early embryo, usually mouse, or originally mouse, and put into culture, and they go on dividing proliferating enormously, make millions of cells. But nevertheless, they remember that they are embryonic and they can form every other kind of cell in the body. There's a major discovery by uh, a person who's shown here. Now, you may think that these major discoveries don't crop up with hippies smoking and everything else. Uh, but if this individual wasn't at the Christmas party, you would recognize him as Martin Evans, so he, he amuses us a great deal. <laughs> um, that was most appropriately awarded the Nobel Prize in about a couple of years ago. <clears throat> um, and uh, that's really, that, that discovery of embryonic stem cells is actually very fundamental because all these experiments which I'll be talking about really depend upon being able to amplify the number of cells you get once you've reversed the, uh, the genetic program. Now, from the, uh, then, uh, people have um, been able to do, make nuclear transfer very successful, and the, the, the acknowledged expert in handling this difficult technique is uh, Dr. Wakayama, who has very kindly given me his video, and it, I hope this will work, and 
you should see how this actually works. That's a, that, by the way, is a cell, and inside it is a nucleus, and you will see that this is the pipette, which he's sucking cells into it, enough to break the cell wall. He's taken two. He's probably going to take it. just taken two in there. Now, this is just when he's getting ready to move the eggs into position, and in a moment you will see uh, the mouse eggs uh, being uh, placed uh, in position as here. Uh, these are the eggs, and that's a, a pipette which, you see, pushes it onto it, and then you suck, and you hold the egg in position. Otherwise, you couldn't possibly do the experiment. So it's, it's now sucking, and that's now held in position. Then the needle carrying the nucleus is now injected amazingly right through to the far end of the egg and if you look carefully you might see the nucleus just coming out and then that one's done. He now, now <laughs> takes the next one and here's, here's, one, here's its nucleus ready to go in. He's going to push that again right in. It's, it's amazing to me the eggs tolerate this but they do. And, and there's the nucleus going out. I think he puts it down that end so it doesn't come out where the needles uh, left a hole. Here's another one and has a polar body showing, so that, that, that's a, a little clip from the experiment. And he was really extremely expert at that. Many people just can't do it. And we don't really know how, his, how, how he acquired this skill, but he is amazingly skillful. And he came into the news just the other day because he was able to transplant a nucleus from a, a mouse which had been deep frozen for 16 years. That was really rather amazing. So he could take this frozen material, actually took the brain, took a cell out, did this nuclear transfer, and got a, a whole mouse out. So it's, uh, it's really astonishing. And he is the recognized technical expert uh, in this field. <clears throat> now, another advance uh, in this area has come from, happy to say, a student of mine who um, did work with frogs, but he could see there wasn't a lot in frogs for him, so he decided he'd like to eventually do all these things with humans. But that's a bit difficult because people don't like doing these experiments with humans, so he decided to work with a monkey. Um, I said, you'll never get anywhere because monkeys don't lay eggs very often and very difficult animals to deal with. But nevertheless, he, he persevered and actually he is amazingly successful. He found a way uh, of doing the same experiment with monkey eggs, which is quite difficult. Uh, he had to change the techniques quite a lot. And so he transplanted nucleus from a monkey fibroblast cell into eggs, he nucleated, grew the eggs up, and then turned them into the embryonic stem cells, Martin Evans' discovery, and then told them to become muscle, heart muscle. And you should now, I hope, let's see if this will work. Oh, wait a minute, let's try that. Uh, uh, Perhaps I should... Ah, now this is... Oh, dear, it's gone all wrong. Now let's... I wonder if it'll... Usually when you have the arrow, it does actually do something. Isn't it? Oh, here we are. It is. All right, wonderful. <coughs> Those are the embryonic stem cells which have been turned into heart muscle. And they're sitting in a dish. And you can see the muscle beating. It's actually a heart, a sort of heart muscle. Um, it's amazing. And... Uh, this is uh, shown that he could start with an adult monkey skin cell, essentially, to put it through this whole process and get back beating heart cells. So one thinks that that's, if you can do it with monkeys, maybe you can do it with humans, um, if, of course, you're allowed to do so. And I come back, uh, come back to that point 
later on. Now, <clears throat> let me switch for a moment to the most current work, um, which is called Nuclear Reprogramming by Gene Overexpression. And it was a, a, an amazing discovery uh, by a Japanese chap called Yamanaka that you can take human, or eventually human, mouse originally, eventually human, uh, skin cells and insert into them purified genes. And if you get exactly the right mixture, which has to be quite pr precise, some of those will turn into embryonic stem cells from which you can then derive other things. The, uh, so he really pioneered this and it's had an enormous effect. There are thousands of people all trying to find ways of making this work well. In actual fact, it works surprisingly badly. It works at a rate of about one in 10,000 cells do this. That's to be compared with the egg, which can make it happen in about 30%. Nevertheless, it works. Um, and uh, it's uh, being developed further. And I'm just going to give you some pictures which summarize the way these things are currently happening. So <clears throat> this diagram really goes back to what I started with, egg, uh, blaster embryo, and then the stem cells arise around that point and then eventually they become adult cells like epidermis, nerve, muscle and so on. Now the experiments I've talked about so far are nuclear transfer experiments and they start with something like epidermis and you transplant the nucleus right back to the egg stage, grow the embryo, uh, early embryo, late embryo and then from then on you can get essentially everything all of these arise, so you, 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 t you reverse the process and you get all these range of cell types. Now, <coughs> Yamanaka's experiment <coughs> is slightly different in the sense that he starts with adult cell types, <coughs> whatever these may be, um, uh, in this case stomach, sorry stomach, and he goes through this induced pluripotency stem cell procedure which essentially means that you transfer a particular set of four genes into these cells and then one in 10,000 will form ES cells and then you can form uh, embryonic bodies etc but nevertheless you, you, they end up forming new adult cell types so you can go from stomach or epidermis in fact for everything to these cell types with albeit an extremely low efficiency extremely low that's a bit of a problem and one reason it's a problem is that one of the genes you have to use for this is called C-MYC, and that happens to be a cancer-inducing gene. So people are quite concerned about that, and maybe research will develop to make it possible to avoid that. But that's where that work is going. And then another route, uh, you see, nuclear transfer goes back to the beginning. Yamanaka work goes back to embryo, but you can also do it this way. You can take cells of the blood series like macrophage or lymphocyte and again use certain genes and switch the macrophage, it goes back a step and then back again on another route to another blood type. It won't work if you can't do it this way from say epidermis to stomach but within a related lineage you can do this with a albeit higher efficiency and that, so that's that step, that's also working and finally, uh, there's one here where you can actually do this gene transfer with two very closely related cell types. So here we have the exocrine pancreas 
And if you give the right factors, you can switch those directly into the endocrine pancreas, which is what you uh, need for diabetes, and this is done by Doug Milton. And so there are all these routes which are beginning to be able to send development backwards and out again on a different route to give you back cells of a different kind. And the important thing is that this can be done now with the cells of one individual so that you get back new cells of the same genetic kind as yourself. And therefore, you don't need uh, immunosuppression, which you'd much rather not have. So these are, these are the kind of directions work is going on at the moment, uh, very active, and it's probably the combination of several which will ultimately be uh, of greatest value. So <clears throat> now I'm going to uh, switch. Oh, this, I'm sorry, that, that just is, uh, is a nerve cell derived by this, um, this procedure. Um, now I'm going to switch for this last bit of the talk to talking about mechanisms. And we really want to know uh, how is it that an egg will switch things backwards, uh, reverse development. Uh, you might say, why do we want to know? In general, we all want to know how things work. And when you do know that, it almost invariably turns out that you learn something very useful. So the egg, for example, has a large abundance of factors which can switch differentiation backwards, uh, re reverse the process, and it can do it remarkably well. We'd like to know how it does it, and what are the components that it's using to do that, so that we can make it work even better. Now, with the experiments I've just briefly summarized, it's really very difficult to find out what's happening if only one in 10,000 cells changes. But if you use the egg root or something like it, you have a better chance. And I shall now talk about the thing called the oocyte, which is the germline cell that Anne McLaren worked with most of her life. And we, it turns out you can transplant nuclei into this and also get a, a remarkable switch. Um, I'll show you one of these in a moment. And one does this with frogs because they're such big cells, they're very convenient. Could do it with mice or even humans, but it's technically much easier with frogs. So you put, these, you put a lot of nuclei into this part of the oocyte, it's a thing called the vesicle, and there's no replication, intense RNA synthesis, and the same cell sits there, and a few days later, these same nuclei have now turned on all the embryo genes, the ones you need, the stem cell genes. And the question is, how is that happening? Now, these are the, the frog oocyte, it's like, they're very big, like, a, like a, an egg, and that thing called the germinal vesicle sits inside there, it's a huge, uh, it's actually a nucleus, but it's got an enormous amount of reserve materials, and these reserve materials are needed for development. So here is the oocyte with its germinal vesicle full of reprogramming molecules. These are contributed to the egg and the egg to the embryo, and so these molecules uh, are needed for embryo development. And these cells, the oocytes, are amazing in several ways, but one of which is that they have extraordinarily expanded chromosomes called lamp brush chromosomes. This is, this is a chromosome with the usual large number of genes in a, in a row, and these loops are genes puffed out which are being very actively read or transcribed. So this cell has a way of 
opening up the chromosome and reading a huge number of genes. And we use that because that seems to be part of the nuclear reprogramming process. And just to show uh, that this works, here are some mouse or human nuclei work perfectly well put inside the frog oocyte. And these genes, called OCT4 or NANOG, are one of the key ones, two of the key ones, which are diagnostic of stem cells. So once you can turn those genes on, you're a good way towards uh, generating uh, totipotent stem cells. And here you see some cells work very quickly, other ones slowly, but they all eventually work. So let's say a, a few words about mechanisms. And one of the key events, it turns out, is called chromatin decondensation. And that's what those lamp brush chromosomes had done. To give you a feeling for this, this is a, a mouse egg, but a human egg would look exactly the same. Here's the egg, and these are sperm. Now, the sperm nucleus, shown in green, is intensely condensed, absolutely compacted, totally into this tiny thing. But when that sperm enters the egg, it becomes what's called the male pronucleus. So this nucleus is expanded to that large object there, and that is part of the decondensing process that the egg knows how to do. We don't know how it does it, but that's critical. And when you do these experiments that I'm talking about, you can take uh, human nuclei, here they are, a bunch of them, uh, put into the oocyte, and a short while later, either two days, in some cases much quicker, each one of those has now become enormously expanded into a kind of balloon. And that's critical for the the opening up of the genes, turning on the stem cell genes, and a lot of work now is trying to find out how does the egg do that? What are the components that reverse or open up the chromatin? Some candidates have names, like nucleoplasmin, other ones are not yet known. But that's a key component of the process. Then there is the removal of what we call differentiation marks, and this is things like demethylating the DNA, and modifying histones. I'm not going to talk about those, but the egg, oocyte and egg can do those. And one of the most important things it does is to change protein DNA exchange. Now, proteins are the molecules that sit on genes and tell them to be active or inactive. And you have to change these to, to reprogram a nucleus. And it turns out that the egg has a oocytes have very special kind, another special kind of histone, happens to be called B4. And in this experiment, which is a video, the, these proteins in the adult are green, labelled with a green fluorescent marker, and the egg ones are labelled in red. And you'll see with the video, these rather dramatically switch uh, in a short time from green to red. Oh, I hope you will, if this thing works, and it is. So that's taking place in about an hour. The whole of these contents of these somatic nuclei have switched because the egg supplies this red component and exchanges it for the one that there was there before. So this is one example of where the, the switch is achieved by a high concentration of a very special molecule in the egg which can bring about this change. And it turns out that that switch is actually necessary for the reprogramming to take place. So one is beginning to identify some of the key components of this process. I haven't got time to show that. 
Now, um, what I'm going to do, I'll just switch back one. What I'm going to do just for the last part of the talk is um, say something about Anne McCurran's many other activities. And uh, she, as has been said, was very active in science administration and ethics. And <coughs> many people have heard of her enormous uh, <coughs> contribution to the human embryology, <coughs> excuse me, authority, uh, which was a very fundamental point because many people were objecting to any of this kind of work being done with humans, human embryos, and Anne was the key po component, I think everyone would agree, on the so-called Warnock Committee. She wasn't chairman, but she was very fundamental in guiding the decisions of that committee. And they came up with a very clever rule, which was that you, should, you can get permission to work with human embryos as long as you do it within the first 14 days. Now, it's quite difficult to persuade a committee that there's something special about 14 days, but the, she made... Uh, uh, there are two points. One was that there is no nervous system in the embryo at 14 days, so they can't feel anything, they can't do anything. Really, what they are is a ball of cells waiting to decide what to become. So she made the point that why shouldn't you work with this ball of cells before they have any any kind of feeling or anything else. And that was a good argument. And the other one was, was rather clever. She pointed out that <clears throat> when you have twins, genetically identical twins, they are the product of a single fertilized egg. And so people who put a large emphasis on the soul, some people will say the, the soul uh, is what defines the human existence. And her argument was that if you don't know whether the embryo is going to form one embryo or two, how can it possibly have a soul? Because the soul hasn't worked out what it's going to be. So it was, um, it was a good argument. And um, <coughs> that's been held up really as a kind of model of how legislation should be uh, operated in, in, in many countries. Um, her influence on this uh, decision-making process was actually very fundamental and it's, it's really been recognized I would say very widely. Another thing she did, or rec more recently, is to become part of the Frozen Ark project, which is, I think, largely run by Dr. Anne Clark, one of her uh, few uh, graduate students, and was invited by Anne, Anne Clark, was invited by Anne McLaren to join her group as a mature student, and that was quite unusual. So Anne Clark and Anne McLaren. Uh, and Brian Clark have all been doing a great deal to conserve species by taking DNA from these potentially extinct animals and preserving it so eventually the genetic constitution isn't lost. Another example of, uh, <coughs> of uh, what she did. And uh, anyone who sat on a committee with Anne will uh, have noticed the extraordinary clarity of mind um, and indeed speech that, that she uh, is famous for, and I was made aware of this one time when I was following her at a, at a, a big meeting. And someone came up to me after, afterwards and said, you know, Dr. Gordon, I really can't understand a word you're saying. You really must get elocution lessons from Anne McLaren. <laughs> <coughs> so that was <laughs> helpful advice, but I um, <laughs> never quite managed to pin her down for the necessary elocution lessons. <coughs> then the other thing that all this work moves towards is the ethical, ethical concerns. And I'm going to put up three examples of 
the kind of ethical concerns that exist so that you can form your own opinion on what should be done. So it's called question one, but it's the question. <clears throat> so well, I've explained that you can take nuclei of an adult human skin cell, transplant it to enucleated unfertilized eggs of humans, the resulting human embryos can be used to make embryonic stem cells, which can be proliferated, and then you can turn those into heart or brain or whatever you want to do. And in effect, you're really making cells, spare parts. So someone could say, this is completely unacceptable because you're taking what uh, this, this embryo, this human embryo, could, in principle, have made a human being, even though you start with a skin cell which would die and an unfertilized egg which would die, but you put them together and, in effect, you're getting an embryo. Admittedly, many of them wouldn't survive, but you do make an embryo and maybe one or two would. So you then uh, separate all the cells of the embryo, turn them into embryonic stem cells, which, of course, are not, not an individual. I suppose they don't have a soul either, but they can be turned into what you want. So the question is, this process kills a potential human life to make spare parts for another person. So you have to decide in your own mind whether you think that's acceptable. You might say a loss of life. On the other hand, you might say uh, it's wonderful to be able to relieve suffering by giving people back spare cells uh, for their continuing health. So that's one of the kind of ethical questions which arises. Then another one is this. Um, you have heard of the terrible disease cystic fibrosis by which people uh, usually die in their 20s or 30s, essentially of suffocation, the most appalling disease. And this is, the genetics of that is known. And one in four offspring of cystic fibrosis carriers will develop cystic fibrosis. Well, that's almost entirely true, assuming the genetic mutation is located close together. They usually are. So then there is in vitro fertilization, by which Bob Edwards was famous for showing that you can take human eggs and human sperm, add them together, and get embryos. And I think Louise Brown was his first um, success in producing an individual by this means. So you can get a normal human life by adding sperm and eggs together. So when you do in vitro fertilization, the donor of the eggs will usually produce about 10, 10 eggs, 10 embryos, and you fertilize them, but you only transplant back into the mother two, or sometimes only one, small number. So the cystic fibrosis embryos can be removed, and what I haven't written down, but should have done, is they can be identified. You, what you actually do is go back to the eight-cell stage, pluck out one of those cells, find out if, it's, if that cell is a cystic fibrosis cell or it isn't, and therefore the embryo is. But as I mentioned early on, you only really need three of those eight cells to make an embryo, so you can spare a cell, find out if it's, if it's going to be a cystic fibrosis patient or not, and then you only implant the, the ones that are not going to be cystic fibrosis patients. So that sounds uh, an admirable approach, uh, some people would say, where you, you're essentially eliminating the appalling amount of suffering that an individual would have by stopping the embryos before they really 
uh, have properly become embryos. And that's of ethical consequence, because some people will say, well, this is just the, the thin end of the wedge. Once you start selecting embryos, you might as well get rid of all those with red hair or something like that, just to take an example, or anything else you like. But then they would say, well, uh, wh where do you stop? Uh, you know, once, you, once you do something, there's no end to this. You better stop it quick before these scientists get out of hand. So that's, that's another ethical issue. And then, thirdly, um, I was at a big stem cell meeting this last summer, and uh, they had a session on how they should protect the public from improper use of stem cells. And the, the outcome of that discussion centered almost entirely on how you introduce legislation to stop people providing you with stem cells, which might not be guaranteed to be perfect. So companies are very interested in growing stem cells and they'll sell them to you and they can say, there you are, we'll, you put the cells into the individual and you've cured your disease. Now, the <clears throat> what interested me was that the, the view of these people uh, was almost entirely how do we prevent some stem cells being made available to patients. And they were talking of how you introduce laws and everything else to stop out-of-hand things happening. Now, my view is, who is really taking the decision? Of course, the lawyers will rub their hands and say, this is fine, we can think of a lot of business to do here, we'll write long, complicated laws and stop these things happening uh, for a fee. And uh, uh, the priests will say, well, we don't like this very much. Um, uh, we, we are um, unhappy because uh, various religious concerns. And then there are the patients. And I feel one should be more sympathetic to the patients. If, if I was a patient, and we mostly know people who are suffering a great deal from things like Alzheimer and other disorders, and, and someone said to me, we can give you some stem cells, but we can't guarantee their work. Now, if I was in a serious state, I would probably say, I, it's well worth the risk. I'd much rather have the cells, and even if it's not guaranteed, there's some chance of some relief from this terrible condition, and Parkinson's is a particularly good example, uh, where you, you, I think when you're in the later stages, you'll probably be glad of any hope at all. So I would argue, personally, that it's the patients who should take the decision, not lawyers and priests and philosophers. And I, I very much hope that that, would, that kind of point of view might become more prevalent, and eventually the lawmakers and so on would would essentially say the patients should decide what they, will, what they want. You, you like them to know what, they, what, the, what is known about the subject, the risks, etc., but they really should be the ones to decide. And I think it's sad that the, the lawyers and, and other professionals are really taking over this, and patients are simply not consulted very much. So there's another um, ethical concern. So I've now reached the end of my time, exactly, and... Uh, Thank you very much for coming, but let me also thank, of course, Anne McLaren for having such, led such a wonderful, exemplary life and being a cause for a pleasant occasion like this. Thank you very much.